Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their filmic adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And we're back. Guess who's back in the house? Guess who's back in the house? <laughs> Josie. Jo- oh, oh, you mean us. You yes, mean because you yeah. we've been on a hiatus. Yes, a yes. secret hiatus. In <laughs> truth, of course, we're recording this on our usual schedule and we're <laughs> podcasting into the future. So our voices are actually coming to you from the past. Ooh. Yes, yes. We're taking a mid-season break because it's, or, or not, I guess not a mid-season break, a like break between seasons where we have mm-hmm. taken one because it's convenient to do such things over the summer when people's listening schedules are a little different anyway. And by the time you guys hear this, I will have moved to like a whole new city. Mm-hmm. The future is now, Joe. It's very ambitious. You've got that <laughs> blue sky. You've got that big field behind you. Yes. I'm so jealous of your future self. <laughs> I can't even believe the idea of like a small amount of green space that I can put my own feet in whenever I wish. Yeah. I've got a park next to my apartment building. <laughs> I'm just really stoked about the idea of like going outside without putting on shoes. Is it weird that that's like a level of achievement in life that I didn't realize I needed? Uh, considering the housing market with which we live in, yeah, I think that's like adulting. Seriously. Listeners, if you don't keep up with my Twitter feed, I've recently, well, by the time you guys hear this, will have closed on my first home purchase. It's a small townhouse in the new city where I'll be living, where I've taken a new job at a new university. So it's a very exciting time for me to be reading about some fun and frothy and light entertainment like Josie and the Pussycats. It's like exactly what I needed to reset our project together, Joe. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. We ended on a <laughs> pair of great texts, Mysterious Skin. Beautiful texts. Holy cow. Yeah. 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 Those were some dark days. <laughs> I keep imagining David Rose from Schitt's Creek going, it's very dark. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but today is not. So we're talking about Josie and the Pussycats today. We're talking about both the 2001 film mm-hmm. and the 2016 reboot that was part of the sort of new Riverdale that launched in 2015, which I'll talk about a little bit when we do the synopsis. Yeah. Doing the research for this, I was very intrigued to note that there was such a huge gap between the comics. I mean, yes. I know I know that Josie has appeared sporadically in one-offs and special editions and cross-appearances and that kind of stuff, but there's a very lengthy gap between this new version and the old original version of Josie. She and the Pussycats were never seen really as a particularly strong ratings driver. Mm. The part that surprised me was learning that I don't think there had been a new standalone Josie story since like 1982, Yeah, which is weird because... She's so ubiquitous. Well, she's so ubiquitous. And if, like me, you bought a lot of Archie comics as a kid, all of my Archie purchasing coming after 1982, given that I was born in 1983, mm-hmm. I just assumed those Josie comics were like, being written. But no, they were just being repackaged into those digests. Yeah. We were being bamboozled. Ugh. But before we dig any further into Josie and her history, did you do any homework over this extended break that we have taken, Joe? I did. This <laughs> super extended break allowed me to finish reading My Best Friend's Exorcism by oh, Brady Hendricks. You started that, or you had forecasted that at some point, right? I did, many moons ago, and then <laughs> I finally got my butt around to reading it during the break. And it's... Okay. Oh, Joe. <laughs> People, I keep telling you, basically just level off your excitement because you're doomed to be meh. 
like every text you've been really pumped about has been like, eh. <laughs> Yeah. This one is an interesting case. So I find Hendrix's writing to be quite accessible. I think he's, mm-hmm. he's quite good at what he does. But I don't know if it was just because I'm so familiar with the tropes of horror that I found it to be just a little too familiar. But mm-hmm. the text didn't really give me much new that really excited me so for listeners who don't remember this is about a pair of long-standing best friends who are going through high school they go away with a couple of girlfriends to a cottage so that they can experiment with some illegal drugs for a weekend party and during the course of the evening one of the girls gretchen disappears for many hours and the other girls can't find her and when they do discover her her best friend abby who is the main protagonist of the book she realizes that gretchen is very distraught she's traumatized she seems to be unable to recall what has happened to her and over the course of the coming weeks and months her behavior changes dramatically her appearance changes dramatically she seems much more mean she's not the friend that abby once knew and she eventually realizes that her friend was possessed by something so you know very much out my wheelhouse i love this idea i love the female friendship at the center of it and that's really the part of the book that worked the best for me is this idea that you are so dedicated to a friend even someone who seemingly might have outgrown you or that the friendship wasn't everything that you thought it was and maybe just because you were in high school together that's why you were so good the book does a really good job of reinforcing this idea that sometimes you just have to go to the ends of the earth to save Mm. your friend Mm. and in this case it happens to involve a demonic possession (laughs) but yeah if you're at all familiar with possession films or books this is pretty standard stuff Mm. So, well, I appreciated it. I didn't love it as much as I quite hoped to. But I'm still very excited about the idea that they're going to turn this into a film. Because as Mm. we talked about, this has been commissioned to become a feature film. And I think it could be very interesting. A lot of it is familiar, but some of the actual exorcism-related stuff that happens near the end of the book is very graphic and not child-friendly. So I'm interested to see what kind of rating they might end up with or if they try to soften it to make it a little bit more palatable to people who are looking for something a little more fun and frothy. It's interesting. It's Grady Hendrix. That's his name, right? Yes. Yeah. So I'm wondering, as much as it is clearly pitched to your interest, Jill, I'm wondering if maybe you're not the intended audience for it only because... I think Grady Hendrix tends to get pitched as someone who writes like horror stuff for people who don't normally like, like horror, horror stuff. Yeah. Like he's definitely pitched for people who are looking for kind of crossover titles. Because I read Horror Store, which I think is his first book. Yes, and we talked about it. That's the one that looks like an IKEA catalog. I mean, from a design level, all of his books are amazing. <laughs> like mm-hmm. amazing. But that's that's another title where like like I love that book which you wouldn't expect because I don't (laughs) like being scared or scary things. But looking back at it, I can see why somebody who actually knows the genre and knows the beats of the genre would probably be like, but for me, it was like, wow, this is like super fun and new because I had never read anything like it before. Right. So I'm wondering if because he's sort of positioned by publishers as kind of a crossover figure, maybe that has something to do with it feeling sort of stale to you, maybe? 
I think that's entirely possible. And from an economics point of view, I mean, it does make sense to go after a larger audience of mm. people who are intrigued by horror, but maybe don't embrace it with all the satisfaction that I like. So. <laughs> yeah, I think so too, especially with something like an exorcism title around teen girls, like that's going to draw in an audience that wouldn't maybe normally pick up a horror title. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. So still interested, liked the book, didn't quite love it. I'll be interested to see what the movie looks like. Yeah. And what about you? For my homework, I read the first book of a comic series that I've been meaning to get to for a while called Blackbird. Okay. So Blackbird is by Sam Humphreys and Jen Bartell, and their pedigree is Sam Humphreys wrote the most recent runs of Harley Quinn and Nightwing, and Jen Bartell drew the most recent Thor, I believe. Okay. And so both cases, normally people who work for big two publishers, but this is a creator-owned title that they're working on together that was published by Image. And book one is called The Great Beast. And it's kind of great. I'm really enjoying it. The premise is that there's magic. There's like this magical world that kind of is happening over top of life in Los Angeles. And like normal people just can't see it. It's all sort of masked from their view. Right. But our protagonist, Nina Rodriguez, has always believed in magic. She's like really compelled by the idea of magic. And she's had all these weird moments in her life. Like she believes that their home is going to be hit by an earthquake moments before it happens. She has all these kind of moments in her life. She's left motherless by her mother's death in a car accident when she's a young girl. Her dad is... He's not a good dad. He's a typical <laughs> YA dad. <laughs> oh, dads. And she also has a sister. And when the comic opens, Nina is kind of spiraling out of control. She's come back from dropping out of high school to then graduate successfully, but she's not making the transition into adulthood very well. She works in a bar, but she also drinks heavily, does a lot of drugs, a lot of painkillers. She's not in great shape and her sister is losing patience she's living rent free with her sister but her sister's starting to get more and more frustrated with her behavior and nina can't stop talking about this idea that like there is something more there's this magical world that she wants to have access to mm. and the sort of conflict of the comic is that her sister gets kidnapped by these magical forces that nina manages to gain access to through this bracelet that she finds on the ground. But the great twist in this is that the magical forces, they have like gangs or cabals and they like own different parts of Los Angeles. So like okay. they control different components of the city. And what you find out early in the series is that Nina's mother didn't really die or didn't quite die. And actually she's one of the leaders of these cabals. And the reason why Nina has always believed that she can access magic is that there has always been people from this magical world looking out for her and protecting her even as she does more and more disastrous things right so i'm getting a little bit of shadow hunters mortal instruments crossed with the new zealand book that we read the changeover yeah i think that is a good way to put it and more sort of playfulness than we see in like the shadow hunters kind of stuff like it doesn't take itself very seriously like the world makes sense it has logic and rules and the magic has logic and rules and it follows all of its rules so but... we're already doing better than <laughs> the <Marlin story laughs> it's true but it's not very self-serious like it it knows that it is a comic about magic but right. here's the coolest part stylistically it's kind of a neo-noir Ooh. yeah now you're speaking <laughs> 
sticking my tongue. So yeah, it's great. It's immensely satisfying. It's got just the right amount of humor. It's got just the right amount of young woman kicking butt. And uh, yeah, I highly recommend it. So Blackbird, Volume 1, Book Riot listed it as one of their best comics of 2018, which is how it got onto my list of things to look for. Yeah, highly recommend it for a fun summer read. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. Speaking of fun summer reads. Exactly. <laughs> Let's transition into the world of Josie and the Pussycat. Season two is when I really nail transitions, Joe. It's my it's my resolution. Oh, okay. <laughs> We've moved on beyond the email, huh? <laughs> We're skipping it. We're just right. skipping okay. email. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I guess I should give like a synopsis of Josie and the Pussycats or maybe just some context. I don't know. I think a little bit of context. Yeah. It, this is I don't know the if most there's a lot of plot. Yeah. <laughs> no. Okay. So uh, in 2015, the whole of Archie Comics basically rebooted itself. And the main difference that came with the 2015 reboot that people refer to as New Riverdale is really the idea of like consequence. <laughs> So Archie shifted in 2015 from being like an episodic comic that restarts at the beginning of every issue to a comic where there's like character arcs that mm-hmm. develop over time. Yeah, which is really what a lot of titles had been trending towards for quite some time at that point. Yeah, I mean, Archie as this sort of episodic kind of sort of in the 50s, but also everybody has cell phones kind of weird. It hadn't been working for a while, really is what happened. And they took a risk. They hired um, a whole new creative team. They took a big risk. They relaunched basically all of their titles between 2015 and 2017, I guess. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of amazing. And so yes. that's everything. The Archie comic, the Jughead comic, Reggie and me, Betty and Veronica, The Road to Riverdale, which is a tie-in with the TV series. Mm-hmm. And even the Archies, the band, got a re-release and Josie and the Pussycats as well. Right. And this might be a good time to encourage people to revisit our episode on the chilling adventures of Sabrina, because that was included, I don't think right away, but it ended up following suit as a result of a lot of this rebranding. And we talked a lot about that at the time. We did, yeah, because what came on the heels of people really enjoying this sort of more grown-up Archie was this move to also have this line of kind of horror style comics. So we had Sabrina, but also Afterlife with Archie, which was a zombie mm-hmm. series, The Hunger of Jughead or Jughead yes. the Hunger, uh, Betty, Betty and Veronica as vampires. So like we have we have a whole series of things running parallel that we did talk about when we talked about Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Yeah. It almost seems like they discovered that adults existed and were interested in purchasing things that make them feel nostalgic, but also feel of the time. I think Archie had, Archie Comics as a company had always seen, had always read the nostalgia market as people wanting more of the same. Mm. I don't think that they recognized until, really until John Goldwater the third, I think. He's the he's the son, the most recent person to take over Archie. He's the son of the original creator, grandson of the original creator. He was the one who was like, you know what? We're not really selling very well anymore. And everybody thinks they know what we are. But what if we let these properties into the hands of really talented artists and writers? And that's what they did. So they hired folks like Chip Zdarsky, Ryan North, Franco, oh, I can never remember his last name, Mark Mm -hmm. Wade and Fiona Staples, but like really big names in comics who had a body of work behind them and would bring a fan base with them that maybe wasn't the fan base that would normally read Archie. And it's been just massively and wildly successful. 
Right. And really the existence of Riverdale, I think, comes down to the success of the relaunching of Archie. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, right? Because it feeds back and forth too, right? So anybody who got attracted to Riverdale was probably inclined to then maybe check out the comic. And people who were checking out the comic were like, oh, hey, now there's a TV show tie-in. So it's very savvy from a conglomerate kind of way. Which, yeah. of course, is also something that gets taken up in the actual narratives of these <laughs> Josie properties. It's true. So Josie and the Pussycats particularly, if you are someone who remembers the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s kinds of incarnations of Archie, which are all identical, basically. Yeah. Josie and the Pussycats is the band at Riverdale High. They're a little bit older than Archie and his friends. They're a couple of years ahead of them. In some incarnations, they've already graduated. In some incarnations, they're seniors when Archie and his friends are freshmen or juniors. Freshmen or sophomores, sorry. The idea is that the band that Archie forms in the Archie universe is always kind of mentored by Josie and the Pussycats. Yeah. And so they're a little bit older, a little bit more savvy, and a little bit more successful. And depending on the incarnation, sometimes they are rock stars, and sometimes they are just the most popular band in Riverdale, but they always have that little bit of prestige or coolness above Archie and his friends. Mm -hmm. Josie and the Pussycats are three girls, Josie, obviously, Mm -hmm. and then her two friends, Melody and Valerie. And there's always basically the same personality makeup in that Josie is really driven. She wants to be successful. She's the one who sort of is the brains behind the operation of the band. She's usually the lead songwriter. She's usually the one sort of thinking about the career. Valerie is smart and savvy, but also more emotionally intelligent than Josie. Mm -hmm. She's the one who's frequently having to teach the lessons of friendship to Josie and how you need to put your relationship with the other girls in the band first. Yeah, she kind of grounds things, right? Yes, definitely. And then Melody is pretty much always played for laughs as kind of the dumb blonde in the band. So, oh yeah, and Valerie is black, Josie is white and a redhead, although various versions of realness of of her Mm. redheadedness, but that's often played against Archie's redheadedness. And Melody. Melody is sort of the bubbly blonde. So we've got Claire already hair colors and embodied across the band. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly true. It's basically Charlie's Angels, if you think about it. <laughs> With guitars. Yeah. And they're just frothy, light, fun comics. There's pretty much always the same lesson to be learned in every incarnation of Josie, which is that Josie has to learn that friendship is more important than success. Right. Does not matter which version of Josie we are talking about, she never learns. And actually, that extends into the Riverdale universe. <laughs> too, where Josie and the Pussycats are very different. So in the 2016 reboot that we read for today, and we read both volumes, there's only two volumes out, and I think that's it. It felt close-ended, didn't it? Yeah, it did. I don't think there's an intention to continue the series beyond nine issues. Marguerite Bennett and Cameron Diordio and Audrey Mock, that's the team. So Bennett and Diordio are writing the text, and Audrey Mock is the artist. I like Mock's visual style more than the other comics in the reboot. It really calls back to the original 50s style of Archie comics. Mm-hmm. It has a real sort of retro nostalgic sensibility in the visual world of the comic. And the plot here is not much different than what I've outlined as sort of the tropey plot of Josie and the Pussycats in this comic they are quite a bit more famous they have 
the same manager who they usually do, Alan M., although he presents as a bit of a love interest for Josie, who then kind of uses her, and Josie learns a lesson about friendship. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we might be using that word a lot. If you're somewhere and it's after five o'clock, feel free to use that word as a drinking game. (laughs) So true. But yeah, I guess I don't really know what to say about the plot, Joe, beyond the fact that they are trying to be successful artists and they keep getting sort of stymied first by the fact that Josie has a friend from high school who she has hurt very badly and she is the first person who wants to destroy Josie. And then there's a gang of jewel thieves. Oh no, then there's a gang of rednecks who try to abduct Josie and the pussycats. Yes, using contractual obligation. (laughs) Because they didn't read the fine print on their contract when they signed it. Mm -hmm. And then there's these jewel thieves, and then there's a rival band. And really, it's just a series issue to issue of Josie and the pussycats trying to just play music and having to get themselves out of some ridiculous scrape in the process. There's a lot of chase scenes, and there's a lot... And there's a lot of metafiction going on. All of the characters in Josie and the Pussycats know that they are in a comic book. And so there's a lot of time spent playing with the tropes of comic books. So on more than one occasion, Josie gets the, or Melody, Josie or Melody get the group out of a scrape by announcing comic book science Mm -hmm. to just like magically remove themselves from a problem. Yeah, or using puns as weapons. A lot of puns, puns as weapons, yeah. Yeah. So the book is very self-consciously a comic. It's playing with the idea of Josie and the Pussycats being aware of the fact that they exist in the world of a comic. It's very funny if you like that kind of metatextual humor, but the flip side is that there's basically no stakes because you always know that they can comic book science themselves out of whatever problem they've gotten into. So it's a bit double-edged. Yeah. Maybe this is a good point to reinforce the fact that you and I have differing opinions as to the success of this. Yeah, so I like the comic. Like, I don't think it's a great work in comic book history or anything, but it's fun. It's frothy. It's light. I think it's successful at what it's trying to do in the way it plays with the tropes of comic books and the history of Josie and the Pussycats. Mm -hmm. But Joe feels a little differently. (laughs) I do, but it's interesting to hear you talk about it because I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying, but the bar for success just didn't, yeah, it didn't work for me. Yeah. My biggest issue was that despite the fact that this is a relatively short run of only nine issues, not only did the lack of stakes tend to bother me, the really accelerated pace and kind of happenstance way that the plot comes together really irritated me. So in the very first issue, Josie and Melody are roommates and Josie is a struggling artist. Melody finds a cat on the street. She takes it to the vet, which is where they meet Valerie, who works as a technician at a kind of humane society animal shelter. And they decide to form a band that then performs their first song six hours later. (laughs) Then they're discovered by Alan M. And the next issue, they are megastars. Yep. 
it happens so quickly. Like, we even get the first inter-band fight, courtesy of Alexandra Cabot, who you mentioned but didn't name. That's Josie's friend that, you know, they had a very tumultuous falling out over a karaoke machine as children. And her twin brother is Alexander Cabot, who takes over management once it becomes untenable for Alan to continue in the role. Mm Mm-hmm. But I just found that so much of the conflict, it's not even that it's superfluous and silly and all just a little bit light and fluffy, as you said. It's the fact that everything just happens and escalates so quickly that I just couldn't care. So it's hard for me when the entire principle of the text is about female friendship and learning lessons. Not only does the lesson get learned every single issue in almost the exact same way (laughs) i found so often that i was just like wait this is a comic about a girl band who are immediately discovered and it has nothing to say about fame about responsibility like there's a couple of times where they end up sneaking away from a more high profile gig to do something good with their celebrity but then that's just immediately abandoned in the very next page or issue Mm -hmm. and we get this rogue gallery of inept idiot villains and i just kept constantly going why why are we contending with euro pop robots why are we contending with illegal animal importers like nothing in it made sense to me and it felt very haphazardly written i think that all of that is true like i don't actually disagree with anything that you're saying (laughs) I just enjoyed it. Which is also fine. You can like something and simultaneously (laughs) recognize that it's maybe not the greatest or not the best. And I think too, like, part of the pleasure of the comic for me is like, there's all these little in-jokes that run through the comic that play on your level of knowledge of Josie and the Pussycats, like, through their previous incarnations right so like for example at the beginning of the comic josie's singing in a bar that her friend pepper works at Mm -hmm. and like we barely hear about pepper again pepper basically gets written out and one of the things that alexandra points out is like look at pepper you don't even remember her she like basically paid your way up to the beginning of the comic and you don't even know who she is anymore you don't even talk to her anymore And there was, in the first incarnation of Josie and the Pussycats, there was a Pepper in the band Mm -hmm. who just got completely written out with no explanation in the 70s. Like, just, she was just gone. Yeah, because she was replaced by Valerie. Yes, yeah, exactly. And so there's, like, all of these moments through the comic where it's just sort of, like, poking at those kinds of bits of the history. Mm -hmm. And for me, that metatextual stuff was enough like, that was fun enough for me to forgive the fact that, yeah, the plot is basically incoherent. And each issue is basically, we get booked to play a gig, something gets in the way of us playing the gig, we get into trouble trying to figure out the thing that's getting in the way, there is a chase scene, we learn a lesson about friendship. I mean, that's basically yeah, every that's single basically issue. It. Yeah. Yep. It was very hard, and maybe this would have been different if I had been reading it issue to issue as well. This is something we haven't talked a ton about, but we're frequently reading these as volumes. Like, I Mm -hmm. don't often have time to read issue to issue. I prefer Mm -hmm. to just read it as a bit of a symposium. No. Me too. Compendium. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And there's something to be said for reading 
it's almost like a concentrated dose, right? So reading Valerie lecturing Josie repeatedly about letting go of her ambition, being a better friend, opening up emotionally, (laughs) you know, when you get to the third iteration and you've been reading this for about 40 minutes, you're like, oh, jeez, like, I get it. It's very repetitive. Whereas when it was initially published, it was maybe once a month, sometimes with breaks between. And so if it's just like, if it's one of the comics you're picking up every month and it's a little bit of comic relief in the stack that you pick up, then you're Mm going to have a different relationship to that repetition. And this is something we talked about, you know, when we talked about Orange Marmalade or when we talked about other sort of serialized texts that we're really not reading in the way they were like, quote unquote, intended. Yeah. 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 It's interesting too, though. So I'm very much a fan of metatextual humor. I like self-referentiality. I enjoy texts that are playful and are aware of their readers, their audiences, and they're not afraid to you know use that to their advantage. And for me, this is a title that's kind of half and half. There were a lot of times where I found myself gravitating towards Melody and that very savvy kind of wry mixture of she's so dumb that it's almost unbelievable. Like she she abandons a date with a hedge fund manager (laughs) so that she can adopt a cat that she names, you know, an absolutely ludicrous multi-hyphenate name. And she thinks she refers to his job as being a hedgehog. She can't remember hedge fund manager. Right. And you're thinking, oh my gosh, she's so silly. But then there are other times where... She's quoting Shakespeare, like, at length. And, like, and she's berating people who don't get her Shakespearean references. I Mm -hmm. loved that part. And she kind of turns into a bit of a weird secret assassin as the comics go on. And, you know, that kind of thing is delightful. But then there's also an entire issue where she dresses like Elsa from Frozen. And all of her lines (laughs) is just dialogue from Let It Go. In fairness, they're in a frozen castle. Uh, don't even get me started. <laughs> it was just a little too much wink, wink, hitting you on the nose with the pandering thing. I where... think these critiques are all completely fair. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to belabor the point. It just, it's, I don't know. It's funny because, you know, we haven't touched, we haven't done Archie. We haven't done Riverdale. But I did feel like some of the problems I've had with Wade's run on the Archie Mm -hmm. volumes was definitely in play with this. I really like that first volume. And then after that, each successive piece, I've become increasingly disenfranchised with the way that it's written and the way that the content's being handled. Mm. It's just been interesting to see Like I'm negotiating my relationship to these revised texts and I'm not always in love with what they're doing. Mm. Yeah, I think, I mean, as I say, I think all of what you're saying is fair. And I I think that part of what's happening with Josie and the Pussycats is that we're seeing something that does appear in the other Archie comics, which is this tension between trying to represent a version of these characters that is appealing to a nostalgic audience, Mm -hmm. but also trying to fold into what has always been an entirely episodic series, this notion of, like, not... And what we see in Josie and the Pussycats really is a comic that probably should be episodic because the overarching plot arc doesn't... As I say, there's no stakes to it, and it doesn't really make a great deal of sense, and it's repetitive because if the lesson that Josie needs to learn is how to be a good friend, she's really bad at it Mm -hmm. because... She has to learn it in the exact same way every single issue. Mm -hmm. 
And so if that's the overarching narrative of the series, then it's not, it's not successful, right? And so, and I think what I see happening there is this tension between how do you deal with a comic property that is by definition episodic and frivolous when you've decided to transition it to something else. And I think there are stories, like I think Jughead's story, particularly the way Ryan North has written it, and particularly with the way it tries to address asexuality in his character and how mm-hmm. like like I think that has lent itself far more successfully to this kind of storytelling yes. than something like Josie and the Pussycats, which ultimately there wasn't much there to begin with. Like it works really well episodically because that's all it is. It's like mm-hmm. we're gonna try to get famous. Something got in our way and now we're friends. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it doesn't need to move into the more mature universe, you know? Well Yes, I want to follow up on that, but I also kind of want to introduce the film at this point because I feel like the film as its own standalone property that existed, you know, what, 15 years before yes. this revamp came out and 20 years after the last regular episodic version of Josie was being printed regularly. Yep. I feel like it is a much more successful text Despite the fact that it is more mature, it's telling one storyline, but it's, I don't know, for some reason it's doing everything that I think I wanted in the comic, mm. that it's doing it so much more successfully. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the film is more successful. I think it's, it doesn't have the same role of trying to become a stretched out series, which I think is ultimately where it fails in mm. the comic. And it doesn't have that problem because it is a completely standalone text as a film. And I agree with you 100% that it's more successful. And I'm excited to talk about it. So let's roll the trailer. (laughs) For every band, there is a moment when they know they have made it. For one band, this is not that moment. Thank you. Thank you, guys. You're a great crowd. Okay, girls, we need the lane now. And your shoes. They were three small town girls with big time dreams. Who's a rock star? I am. Who wanted to share their music with the world. We can't sit around here waiting for it to happen. We are musicians. We should be out there playing music. We do play. Nobody believed in them. You know, you suck. (laughs) But they believed in themselves. We're special. Yeah, special Ed. Now, in a world of tough competition, and that is so sad. Fate is giving the Pussycats the chance of a lifetime. We'd love for you to sign with Mega Records. How am I gonna pull this off? I'm a girl from Riverdale. I'm not a rock star. You gotta believe in yourself. Things are finally going their way. But between the mania. Is that Joseph? Huge. The managers. We decide everything. What's hot and what's not. Welcome to your party. Who else thinks that Fiona's a freak? And the media. We're gonna be on TRL. Mm-hmm. This may be the toughest gig they've ever played. Have you noticed that everything has sort of become all about Josie? Josie. 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 Okay. 
So, as we mentioned off the top, Josie and the Pussycats, so same title and everything, this is a film from 2001. It is the most 2001 film I have ever seen in my life. Very much so. Every time someone appears on the screen, you're like, 2001, 2001. To the, every costume is like letter perfect at the time. It's like, this to me is just the perfect, um, Douglas Copeland has this thing about how the 90s end with 9-11, like with September 11th, the frivolity and like playfulness and like this end of history kind of sense of the 90s ends. Mm -hmm. And the fact that this film comes out like right before that, it's just like, it's chef's kiss. It's so perfect. Anyway, yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, you're absolutely right, because this really is near the end of the heyday of the teen film boom. So mm -hmm. April 2001 is when this comes out. It's written and directed by a pair. So Harry Elfont and Deborah Kaplan, and they're the people responsible for the film Can't Hardly Wait with Ethan mm -hmm. Embry and Jennifer Love Hewitt. It's kind of a quintessential teen film in the vein of Dazed and Confused for the 90s audience. So the film stars Rachel Lee Cook from 1999, She's All That, which is another quintessential teen film. And mm -hmm. of course, we could do that because it's a bit of an extension of Pygmalion, My Fair Lady, and so on. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, she's more known for that film than this, despite this being the much better film. <laughs> I digress. Tara Reid is Melody, the drummer. And then we've got Rosario Dawson. And this is actually one of her big breakout roles. She was not a known entity at this point. Do you know who else auditioned for this part? I do, but I want you to read it off because the incredulousness of my jaw drop was magnificent. Beyonce! Yeah, and Aaliyah. And Lisa Left Eye Lopez. It's crazy. <laughs> Very different films. Completely different films, and apparently the casting director said that Beyonce was far too quiet and shy for the role. Which, if you uh, think about the time... Yeah, no, I know. Totally, but like, can you... Uh, can yeah. you imagine? No. Good for Rosario Dawson, though, man. Good for her. And to be <laughs> honest, I think good for Beyonce, because I think this actually would have set her off on a very different kind of path. You're probably right. Okay, we've also got Alan Cummings and Parker Posey as our villains, and they are original creations for the film. Mm -hmm. And then we've got Gabriel Mann as Alan M., Paulo Costanzo as Alex Cabot, and Missy Pyle as the show stealer. It's basically her and Parker Posey steal this movie, but she plays Alexandra Cabot. Um, Paulo Costanzo? That guy's not capable of aging. He looks very similar, doesn't he? Okay, so this is 2001, and he's playing a character who's literally the exact same age as he played in the TV series that came after Friends, the reboot, that horrible Joey thing. Mm. He played the same age of character in that film, too. And that, I mean, that had to be like five years later, right? I mean, you're asking me to remember Joey, and I've <laughs> just dumped all that knowledge. It's just odd. That guy does not age. Anywho. Uh, yes. But can we talk about some of the cameos in this movie? Absolutely. Yes. So Donald Faison mm -hmm. from Scrubs fame. Yep. Seth Green from mm -hmm. all of the 90s. Yep. But Buffy. Right. Yeah, that too. Carson <laughs> Daly, yeah. right? Which is like, so this is a movie set. There's They go on TRL for God's sake. Yeah. That's like an earmark, like a historical earmark yes. right there. 
Yes. And uh, Eugene Levy, who I'm watching in Schitt's Creek right now, so seeing him in this role made me laugh mm-hmm. so hard. I especially love that his <laughs> cameo has everything to do with Americana. As yes. like, we need to use this technology to brainwash the masses. And yes. it's delivered by arguably one of the more famous Canadian Canadians. actors. Yes. <laughs> uh, oh, okay, so, good. so we should probably recap the plot of this film because it is a little bit different from what we've experienced in some of the comics. So in this version of Josie, they are initially a struggling band who no one is listening to in Riverdale. And the film propositions that there is a record label, Mega Records, and they go through bands as needed so that they can operate their nefarious schemes of embedding uh (laughs) it's so ridiculous so they embed subliminal messages subliminal Mm -hmm. messages underneath the music so that they can sell clothing and ideas and and set trends all signs of merchandising and trend setting yep so they show this scene of like kids in a record store listening to like the mo- the last most famous band du jour. Mm-hmm. Literally, they're called du jour. They die in a plane crash. Well, we think they're dead in a plane crash. And their very last single, they show um, this nefarious producer slipping it onto the CD player at a record store, and all the teenagers are like, "Wow, this song is amazing." I want orange juice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so good because it's not even always like shoes. cool products. I love the way it's like, sometimes it's really cool high-end products and sometimes it's like, we should be drinking orange juice. <laughs> so I really good. want a Zima. You don't drink. <laughs> Zima. I haven't thought about Zima since like working on Generation X. It's so good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So after Dujour has been put to rest, Wyatt, played by Alan Cummings, is tasked by Fiona, the head of Mega Records, to find a new band so that they can move the operation into the next level. So he's driving around Riverdale because that's the closest city to where the plane went down, and he stumbles upon Josie and Melody and Valerie crossing the street. I was going to say, he doesn't stumble upon them, he nearly hits them with his car. Nearly hits him with his car. They're crossing the street, and as they're walking with the wind blowing in their hair, they've got their cat ears on, and people from the record store walking a sign that says the number one band in the world (laughs) right behind them, and he holds up the CD CD case case. so that he can picture what they will look like, and he's found his band. Everything is so charmingly, cartoonishly over the top. It's one of the things I really like about the film is that it evokes comic books mm-hmm. in all of the ways that it's playing with sort of metatextuality and visual signature of the film. And everything. Like, it's really, really good at evoking that. Mm-hmm. I feel like mm-hmm. it's on par with the kinds of things that we discussed as propelling Scott Pilgrim to the top Agreed. of adaptations, mm-hmm. but it's doing it somehow in a, a bit more of a subtle way because it's not employing all of the visual panache that Edgar yeah. Wright brought to his project, but it's still very, you're right, very cartoonish, but in all the right ways. Yeah. Or at least it is to discerning audiences with intellect as opposed to the people who tried to review this film when it came out in 2001. But we'll get there. Who apparently... Sorry, go ahead. (laughs) I just, I don't understand how anybody watched this movie and didn't know it was a satire of consumer culture. Yeah, and that's really what it is. So Josie and the Pussycats, they are brought to New York City. They are immediately made over. They've got an album, despite the fact that they've never cut a single track. They're 
first single goes number one in a week and all of a sudden they're playing this mega well a mega stadium show that of course is actually part of the plot for mega records to take over the world with the help of the u.s government and a bunch of high-priced millionaires who were brought in to tour the facilities it's all very very ridiculous all that Completely. matters that you know is that it's about selling things to teenagers mm -hmm. and the film constantly makes reference to the fact that it is doing that with the music but also with the film yes yes and it's one thing that i think is great remember there's an episode of 30 rock where they're talking about like corporate sponsorships mm -hmm. and they're sort of doing this like wink and a nudge thing about corporate sponsorships but also there's just a ton of corporate sponsorship in that episode yes all of which are real corporate sponsorships the film is not doing that like the film no. is playing with this sort of like oh my god like there's product placement everywhere but none of that was paid product placement it's all part of the larger satire which when yeah. you think about it huge opportunity missed considering how it bombed at the bottoms they might have been able to recoup if they had charged all those brands yeah so you brought up a couple of, of different facts so the budget for this film was 39 million dollars which is quite high for a teen film yeah and it really did it bombed it only made 14.9 million dollars so this film was not understood no by audiences by critics and i will say like i don't know what the marketing was like for this film but i was right in the wheelhouse in terms mm -hmm. of like i was 18 when this movie came out and i loved musical comedies and i liked archie comics and this movie never came across as something i wanted to watch so i don't know what the marketing plan for this movie was or how it got pitched in trailers and stuff but mm -hmm. i'm guessing not well because <laughs> because like this is something i would have totally loved at 18 and i have no idea why i didn't see it yeah, so I didn't have an opportunity to revisit the trailer before you know, we played it for the show, but I remembered it being that they sell the film as a fairly generic teen comedy. So mm. it's a trio of girls who get discovered and they become pop stars and have wacky mm. adventures along the way. So mm. a little bit more in tune with the kinds of things that you might expect from the comic. Right. Which in hindsight probably seemed like a good idea, but really this film is probably one of the most savage critiques of yes. capitalism. It's amazing. But it's a teen film, which is unprecedented. It's you bonkers. You never ever see this kind of stuff. So you mentioned the branding. So here's what we've got. We've got Sega and Dreamcast. We've got Motorola, Starbucks, Gatorade, Snapple, Evian, Target, Aquafina, America Online, Pizza Hut, Cartoon Network, Revlon, Kodak, Puma, Advil, Bounce, and more. Steve Madden. I remember them carrying the bags from the Steve Madden store because mm -hmm. yeah. Dev had Dev was in the room with me and he was like, don't they sell those now at like Target? Which they do. And I was like, yeah, but at the time, like that was like, those, a, were, high those were very fancy shoes then. Yeah. <laughs> you have to use your 2001 brain to watch this movie. This is true. <laughs> yeah. So as you mentioned, all of those brands. And the funny thing is, is that I've already said the word once before. I'm going to say it again. The branding in this movie mm -hmm. is so ubiquitous. It it's is bonkers. insane. Yeah. My absolute favorite. So I watched this with my husband, Brian, and he had never seen it before. So he was like, wow, the branding is out of control in this movie. And I was like, I know. I love it. And of course, he picked up on it quite quickly. But there's a moment where Alan M and Josie, in a brief reprieve from 
her stardom and an opening in her schedule, they run away to the aquarium mm-hmm. and they have to escape a horde of screaming fans. So they duck into this room and it's a like an underground vista where you can see the animals under the water. And there's actually an Evian ad yes. at the back. So good. <laughs> at the aquarium. It's so good. It's so ridiculous. Like, no one would ever put an ad there, even though, actually, in hindsight, would be a good place because you've got a captive audience and you're thinking about water. (laughs) The interesting thing is that if you go back and you look at the way that the film was received, people didn't get it. No. So when you look at the reception, and this is the piece I wanted to read to you, Rotten Tomatoes does a bit of a consensus, like a a synthesized version of what all of the reviews are saying. It's usually about a sentence or two, and this is what they say. This live action update of Josie and the Pussycats offers up bubbly, fluffy fun, but the constant appearance of product placements seems rather hypocritical. No, but... No, you missed the point. <laughs> you missed the point. Uh, oh. <laughs> what the actual? <laughs> so you potentially got highly educated people who are reviewing this film, seeing nothing but plastered advertising in a film that's talking about how advertising is being used subliminally to sell people things, not understanding that that is the literal joke. How do you not understand that that is the joke? I read Roger Ebert's review, which was just mean. And I was like, I know for a fact you are smarter than this, my friend. Like, right. oh my gosh. Do you think it was just like, you know how as a culture, we're pre-wired to hate anything teen girls like? Exactly. Like as soon as teen girls like something, it's mm-hmm. automatically bad or stupid. Exactly. Do you think people went into the film being like, well, it's a teen girl movie, so it can't be smart? Like, there can't be something clever happening here? I remember people discovering this after the fact and watching it and saying, that movie is so smart. And just feeling like it's ahead of its time because people went into it thinking that it was just going to be light and frothy and dumb. And what they get is, I mean, it's actually also a great teen film. It's all about the tenets of friendship and sticking together and not selling out and being true to your art and all these empowering messages that we keep seeing in YA texts. Both protagonists and villain are women, which is cool. Mm Mm-hmm. And really, the villains, their whole nefarious scheme, in other films, we would have seen this, like, think back to Divergent. It would have Mm -hmm. been, we need to commit genocide against these (laughs) other people I don't like. And here it's like, I have a lisp and I want people to like me. And I love, love, love how the government sells them out, right? Like, the government's been in on this since the beginning. Mm -hmm. But you never, like, they don't actually end the... Like, because the gag at the end of the movie is like, oh, it's fine. We can sell you guys out because movies are a more effective way to sell things to teens anyway. Mm -hmm. Like, it's so clever and funny. This reminds me of when, do you remember when Ryan Adams re-released that entire Taylor Swift album where he like re-recorded all of her songs? Do you remember when he did that? I don't remember all of it, but I remember, I think, at least one track. And the Pitchfork reviews were like, whoa, man, like, these songs, because of who Ryan Adams is, suddenly these songs have, like, meaning. So much more depth. Oh, go F yourselves. (laughs) (laughs) You've literally just given, you've just found a way to like something that teen girls already knew was great. Mm-hmm. This is an interesting aspect of our culture, which is that... Oh yeah, we demean the values of people because we feel like they're not intelligent or sophisticated enough. Yeah. 
But then even one of the things that comes up is the reason that they're targeting teens is because they have all of this disposable income, like they're driving economic decisions. So being able to control that is such an important aspect of consumerism. Yes. So we belittle the buying decisions of them. And films are the most guilty of this. Whenever people complain about, oh, there's too many superhero films, oh, there's Mm -hmm. too many horror films, it's because they continue to believe that the movie industry is being propped up by teenagers, and that's Mm -hmm. what teenagers like. And it's interesting because, you know, especially when it comes to women as consumers, women are constantly sent the message that their value is inherent to their youth. And like the older they get, the less valuable they are as people in society. And like you talk to any middle-aged woman, she'll talk about like this sense of just becoming invisible to the world somewhere around her late 30s, early 40s. And yet, (laughs) Mm -hmm. so on the one hand, the only thing of value to consumer culture is the youth of women. But at the same time, let's make sure that we mock and degrade anything that those young women find value in themselves. Like it's just, of course, I don't know if we've mentioned the patriarchy yet this season, (laughs) but it's always the worst. Who had 50 minutes? It is. But one of the things that I like the most about this film is that there's never any doubt that Josie and Valerie and Melody have talent. Yes, I like that too. Because there's an inherent danger that the film tries to make an argument that they might not be liked because everyone has been mind controlled into liking their music. Mm Mm-hmm. And in truth, what it's revealed is that it's not only, I mean, there is a little bit of Josie is the best, everybody should like Josie, but it's also this idea that if the talent wasn't true, at the end of the film, the concert wouldn't work. Yes. And that's the moment that we all hold our breath for because we're rooting for Josie and the Pussycats, right? And so we know because we heard them play at the bowling alley at the very beginning of the movie that they are great, Mm -hmm. right? And so we're holding our breath to make sure that the world feels that way about them too. And it's such a gratifying moment at the end of the film because they are talented and they do write their own songs and Mm -hmm. they do have passion and they are inherently likable and you want them to succeed and then of course because it's a comedy they do succeed and they succeed on their own terms yeah after some tremendous ass kicking which i have to say like I love the fact that this is another perfect sort of a perfect send up satire moment is that the three of them spend all this time right before the final concert embroiled in a battle for their survival, mm-hmm. a physical like a brawl. The Valerie and Melody are nearly killed by assassins. Mm-hmm. And they all have different fighting styles. Like Melody, for some reason, is some sort of martial arts expert. Of course. And Valerie is like this like surprise brawler mm-hmm. and... Josie is a scrapper. It's <laughs> just like a cat fight. It's great. And when they all ascend to the stage, like makeup is perfect. Hair is perfect. Clothes are perfect. It's yep. so great, right? It's like everything that you expect the film to do, it does, but it winks at you at the same time in a way that is really tremendously satisfying. Mm-hmm. Especially, I mean, this is the beginning of our second season. We have watched a lot of teen movies And we've watched a shocking number of teen movies that don't have a great deal of respect for their audience. No, no. And I find that really appalling. Like, 
if you're gonna make money off teenagers, at least respect their competencies. And this movie does, and I think it's tragic that this movie that trusted its teen audience to get this fantastic satire mm-hmm. got completely screwed by adults not understanding it. Yep. <laughs> the teen movie that was too smart for adults <laughs> who said that it was too dumb. I can't even. Yeah, who's I can't the hypocrite even. now? Oh my god. <laughs> I mean, the good thing is, is that this film is a classic. Like, the people who know of it, I don't think I've ever met somebody who looks at it and says, like, oh, no, it's actually pretty dumb. Like, people see this, they have come to appreciate this film as intelligent, as witty. For my money, the meta-commentary, the intertextual references are arguably the most spot-on, I think, of any text. Well, maybe not any text, but it's really fantastic. Like, it reminds me of the smartness that I really respond to in the Scream series, Mm -hmm. where... It's playing within the conventions that it's operating, but it's also commenting on them at the same time. So I love the breaking of the fourth wall, like when Alan Cummings (laughs) sees the band and he just looks over at the camera and he gives us a wink. (laughs) And you're like, yeah, I'm in on it too. (laughs) I love it. But it's, it's got, I think, just a ton of really playful pieces of humor. So we've got Melody being very silly. So she's in the shower, in her McDonald's shower, and she's singing, if you're happy and you know it, and she claps, as you would, and drops her <laughs> drops her cleaning supply. And then you get that funny callback where they enter the party, and you get what's going on in <laughs> Josie's head, where she's worried that people think that she's not good enough and that she doesn't deserve to be there. And then you flash to <laughs> Valerie, said, and she's like, everyone's looking at Josie. They don't think I should be here. And you just got (laughs) Melody singing if you're happy and you know it. And that's very silly. It is. This might be my favorite Tara Reid role, actually, because I think she does a really good job of the frivolous and flighty, but actually shockingly insightful Mm -hmm. character. Like, she balances that so well. Yes. Yeah, it's really good casting for her. Mm -hmm. I quite like rosario dawson's role i think she brings a lot more maturity to the role than i remembered like this most recent rewatch i was like she's helping to ground this a lot more than i initially remembered because she's a bit of the debbie downer character Mm -hmm. because she's the one who's like oh i see we have a billboard in times square did we want to at any point record an album Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then she stands on the street and then they drive away (laughs) (laughs) oh sorry sorry valerie i didn't even realize you weren't in here I love the repartee between Alan Cummings and Rosario Dawson in this movie. She's smart and savvy enough to play that so well. It's I think it's easy for people to get out acted by someone like Alan Cumming, and Mm -hmm. she doesn't not for a second. She's always right there with the same level of like knowing she knows what he's doing just as much as he knows what he's doing, Mm -hmm. and like she's just really good. She plays it so well. Yeah. 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 I think for my money, and maybe this is like the queer side of me peeking out, I have to give shout outs to Missy Pyle and Parker Posey because they're so amazing in what could have been the most caricature of roles. Yes. It's a little sad to me that Alexandra doesn't get quite as much to do. Like, she's really not a villain so much as she's kind of a thorn in everybody's side who just keeps popping up. Literally, my favorite line in the whole movie is when Alexandra's like, I don't even know why you're here. And she goes, I was in, in the, the comic. comic. Yes. He's like, what? <laughs> 
just like nothing, nothing. Oh, so good. And that's the kind of thing where when I saw that kind of stuff in the comic, it didn't work for me. But the delivery and the unexpectedness of it in the film really, really got me. Yeah, no, I can see that. I definitely think it's more successful in the film. I wouldn't try to argue otherwise. I think my latent affection for the property meant that my relationship to those metatextual moments was different, maybe more positive. Yeah. 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 And then uh, what did you think of Fiona Parker Posey? Oh, <laughs> I loved I really liked her. I liked her as this. She's a caricature of, I think I've referred to this trope before as like, 80s power suit feminism right <laughs> in order to be a successful woman in a particular moment in our history you know you had to simultaneously adhere to all the tropes of like body shame and girlishness but also at the same time you had to have like this highlander approach to other women like where right. there can be only one right and i think she hits that so perfectly I mean, in that she renders it absurd, right? She renders that idea that, like, you can't be a whole person and a successful woman at the same time. Like, she renders it completely absurd. And she's just very watchable, like, anyway, right? Yes. And she's very watchable in this role. Yeah. She doesn't necessarily have to be, right? Like, there, you could, this character could grate very easily. Oh, yeah. Particularly because she's such a heightened level of ridiculousness when she almost eats that pringle like that is <laughs> <laughs> which is playing on the very real idea that like she has to look a certain way oh right? it's horrifying i mean that's why it's funny because one step below the funny it's flipping horrifying because she is an archetype of a certain kind of way for women to find success in male-dominated industries right mm -hmm. like she works because we've known or worked for or attempted friendship with a woman who believed those things about what it was to be successful, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why she works so well, because there's this, like, sickening truth. Yeah. But she heightens it so much that it's funny. There's two things in particular that I really love. One is the manic physicality of her performance. <laughs> so she's constantly almost voguing with her hands. You I know, know. Her entrance down the stairs at the party is just off-the-chain camp to me, <laughs> and I love it. So good. The other thing is the costume choice. So you mentioned that this film is very 2001, and mm -hmm. I think that's very apt for the girls themselves, like the halter tops, the backless, oh the flared jeans, oh, even oh, on oh. Alan M. Ooh. When Josie's wearing the suit with only the bra underneath, mm -hmm. like yeah. that to me is that yeah. is that moment. That was power lady it business was, suit, right? I know. So, man. Oh, wow. Anyway, it was an aesthetic <laughs> Also, the shoot is shiny. That's helpful. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, God. The late 90s, man. Such a time of play. It's, uh, it was a look. Yeah. <laughs> but I love how they do it with Fiona, where she's like a style icon. So even though she's mm. meant to be this very powerful businesswoman, if you watch as the film goes on, she becomes increasingly like Anna Winter, well, the yeah. Vogue editor. Like her final outfit is a full on ball gown. <laughs> Like, it's high fashion stuff, and you're just thinking, this is a little silly, but it's also very self-aware in the mm -hmm. way of, like, this is what a woman has to be. She has to be a freaking fashion model mm -hmm. while also trying to destroy the world. Yes, and being pretty successful at it for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would have worked if not for those darn kids. Mm-hmm. Wrong nostalgic property, Joe. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that and, and the soundtrack, I'm not going to lie. The soundtrack made me very nostalgic because I oh, yeah. full on downloaded this and used to listen to it all the time. In my research for this episode, I found out that they've re-released the soundtrack on vinyl. Of course they And I'm have. like, we need that for our vinyl collection. There my husband go. was like, do we? I was like, mm-hmm. I <laughs> find the songs extremely catchy. They're so catchy. So they're all written for the movie, but they're performed by an actual band called Letters to Cleo, which was quite popular in the late 90s. And then it's got backing vocals by all three actresses, as well as, we'll see if you get a kick out of this, Biff Naked. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's adorable. Also, I mean, at least half of the tracks are produced by friggin' Babyface, mm-hmm. speaking of 2001. They're catchy, man. I'm They're catchy. You. I'm telling you. No, I agree. I actually, I'm not, I mean, I'm being funny that it needs to be in our collection, but I am also probably going to buy it if I come across it. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh. So all this to say, I unabashedly love Josie and the Pussycats. Like I, I went to blog it on my Letterbox account and mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I wonder what I gave this film before. It's a four and a half. We should probably um, mention here that friend of the show, Hannah McGregor, was like, you guys are doing Josie and the Pussycats. If you say anything bad about that movie, I'm going to yell about it on Twitter. (laughs) And she was like, I was going to say I'll stop listening, but I probably won't. But I will yell about it on Twitter. And I was like, listen, my policy on all of this is that hate clicks are still clicks. But I don't need to say anything bad about it because it was delightful. So delightful. Just supremely enjoyable. It works as a straightforward entertainment piece, but I think also if you're ever looking for a defense against people to say, well, YA isn't all that smart or it's not all that good, it's like, allow me to introduce you to Josie and the Pussycats. Seriously, so good. I also learned when I was reading about the soundtrack that the soundtrack was verified gold. So, like, I have questions for you as a film scholar. Like, how often do you see that kind of a disjuncture between the box office take and the success of the soundtrack? Oh, no. No, no, no. Look, we're talking Bodyguard. We're talking Titanic. We're talking Dangerous Minds. Like, films do well, and then their albums do well. Yeah. So the idea that a film could tank as badly as this one did on first release, and its soundtrack could be so freaking successful at the same time? Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. And it suggests, I think, there's two different audiences, right? There's the critical audience and then there's the actual, actual audience. And the actual, actual audience might not find the film until video, right? Or DVD. And yeah. it also is the audience, the critical audience isn't buying the soundtrack, no. right? No, no, no. So it suggests that it has always had a pretty big following that was just quiet. Mm-hmm. Or people who potentially divorce the film from the music which I still think would be very odd, but this is also a time when things like Much Music or MTV was still mm. very much a popular thing, as evidenced by Total oh my Request God. Live. <laughs> when they watch the MTV News, when like the breaking news channel in their hotel is the mm-hmm. or in their apartment is MTV News, I was like, yeah. whoa, flashback. Yeah. Holy cow. Things that if you were a teenager and you watched that now, you probably wouldn't even get oh, it. Oh, no way. No, it was calling me back to when like, my main source of news was George Strombolopoulos. Right? Yeah. Or even like <laughs> when Dujour gets uh, interviewed by E.T. at the airport in the opening sequence oh and they sing the E.T. <laughs> oh, theme. Oh, man. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah, oh. There's a bunch of people who are not going to get that. <laughs> Everybody go do yourself a favor and watch this movie. <laughs> yeah. It's delightful. It's really fun. Yeah. 
So we're starting season two with this episode, and so we're starting with a fresh bingo card, Jill. Am I correct? You are correct. The slate is completely blank. And I think, Joe, your idea was that we're going to fill it in sort of one block at a time. Mm-hmm. And okay. as we mentioned, we are recording these in advance, so we recognize that we're going to start to fill this in before some of you might actually catch up with us. So that's why we're only going to do one block each so that we've got space in case you want to write in with your recommendations. So remember your recommendations for this or anything tropey that you see recurring over and over in YA that would make for a good bingo card. So feel free to send it in. And we're starting from a completely blank card, but if there was something on the old YA bingo card that like you like us to look out for in films, you can send that back in too. We're, we'll do whatever you want from us. This is true. Yeah, we're mm-hmm. easygoing that way. Totally. Bingo! Not a good bingo. <laughs> okay, so do you have a YA bingo for Josie and the Pussycats? I do. The square I'd like to add to the card this week, Joe, is Vancouver. (laughs) Vancouver. We did tease this at the end of Mysterious Skin. Yeah. We did, but I didn't know I was going to see Vancouver again, Josie and the Pussycats. I'm telling you, I don't think there's a teen property that escaped the gravitational (laughs) pull of Vancouver. And for me, the moment that I really noticed it is there's just a full-on shot of the Vancouver Art Gallery. Uh, Everybody's extremely excited about something it's a street shot but they're shooting it right in front of the art gallery and it's just okay we're in vancouver so Mm -hmm. especially as i prepare to move away from this fair city that's my square nice okay and mine and i might need you to workshop this with me but what i'm proposing is musicality oh good because that was my other idea oh good okay yeah yeah i'm not sure if there's a better way to phrase it but the idea that music is so important to a lot of these ya texts we've talked about the soundtracks and the the kind of symbiotic relationship that exists between a lot of the movies but also really prominent pop songs for montages or closing credits and that sort of thing I think musicality is a good way to put that because I was I was toying with the idea of like actually having like musical uh, but not a lot of these are musicals but like in Scott Pilgrim the music is incredibly central to the Mm -hmm. to the film so there's there have been a bunch of them so yeah no I think I like musicality okay cool yep so we've got first two slots we've got Vancouver and musicality Cool. Uh, So if you want to add to the card, or you just want to tell us how great Josie and the Pussycats is, haters not welcome, you can find us on the Twitters at hashtag HKHSpod. You can find me individually at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. How about you, Joe? I am at B. Stole My Remote, and that's the letter B. And of course, if you have something longer that you want to talk about, so if you want to talk about, you know, your experiences embracing this text back in 2001, or your love of Parker Posey, or your Josie and the Pussycats fan fiction. <laughs> oh, gosh. I <laughs> thought we had left the fan fiction behind for season Never. Two. Never. Not until we get some. <laughs> any case if you want to deliver any of that you can send us an email at hkhspod at gmail.com and next week we are checking out one of young brenna's most favorite books this is definitely a book that was really important to me mm-hmm. in my actual teenagehood and that is <laughs> the giver we're heading to go check out the giver by lois Lowry. yes 1993 mm-hmm. and then we're also going to be looking at the film from 2014 which has a fairly pedigreed cast and if i remember not great quality so it's interesting i have avoided this film because the book means so much to me yeah. so tune in next week in case brenna's dreams are dashed 
Yeah, tune in next week for when Brenna's dreams will surely be dashed. <laughs> yes, but we're going to be looking at The Giver for its fifth year film anniversary. Oh, fantastic. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, I guess then until next time, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.